morning. I think some of you maybe thought there was going to be food in here. And uh, you, no, I won't make that joke. Um, and little did you realize that my mother is actually the theologian amongst uh, the whole family. She's, uh, mom does, she loves, she loves her Puritans and, and I do as well. And so she's steeped herself in that and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Well, this morning, we are continuing our series. Happy Mother's Day, by the way, to all of you uh, mothers. And um, we're going to celebrate Mother's Day and anniversary by looking at the Father. And uh, this morning, we're, we're, we're sort of segmenting uh, the three main characters of, of this story uh, commonly referred to as the prodigal son, and we'll come to that in a minute. But um, let me start by reading to you all our scripture, which is Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. That's 1039 in the ESV Pew Bible there. 1039, Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what are these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to this familiar passage, we ask that you, Father God, would show us, would reveal to us your own character, your own nature as a father. Oh, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would be blessed from this and that it would in turn bless our lives and that we would go out and bless others through this. So, Father, help us to listen and pay attention to these things, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The parable of the prodigal son, uh, the story almost everyone knows and assumes they understand. A boy was lost and then was found. Well, that's not quite the whole picture. Now, this parable has been called the prodigal son, which prodigal does not actually mean lost. Uh, Prodigal means extravagantly wasteful, which this boy was or did. It's also been called the parable of the lost son, as we said, but it's also been called the parable of the two lost sons. And it has been called the parable of the waiting father or the parable of the gracious father, because it's, it, it's really all about perspective. From what perspective do you read this story? And the title can lead you to read it in a particular way, right? It sort of sets you up for how you're going to interpret and read this story. And so, as I mentioned earlier, over the next three weeks, we will look at this parable from all three perspectives. The father, the prodigal son, and the older brother. Now, there are are a lot of different views uh, on what's being conveyed in in chapter 15 of Luke. What is it that Jesus is teaching specifically here? What is he conveying through this parable? Because it is interesting that the passage starts out by saying, so he told them this parable the passage of of the chapter of Luke 15. So he told them this parable. And and, and the word there is in the singular. It is a singular thing. He told them this one parable. But we see three parables, do we not? We see the lost sheep, we see the lost coin, and we see the lost son or sons or the gracious father, however, again, your perspective is. But Luke tells us that all three were one parable. And it seems to be because his parable keeps zooming in and zooming in closer and closer and closer on a point, on one point. If you notice that that at first the imagery is one sheep, the shepherd goes after one sheep out of a hundred, and then it is one coin out of ten. And then it is one son out of two. Even the value of each lost thing intensifies. It increases a sheep, uh, an expensive coin, a child. 
And if you've been coming at 9 o'clock or if you heard me in the first uh, week that we covered chapter 15, you know that you've heard me discuss this a lot. But if we miss the context here, we miss the purpose for why Jesus is teaching this. And we read about it in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And we talked about the, the, the character of the tax collector and the sinner, about uh, even the, the proximity that, that Jews would keep from them so as not to be tarnished by them, that the, that the tax collectors were even lumped with uh, thieves and murderers. And then we talked about how uh, the Pharisees were viewed and how they carried themselves. And so in response to all of this situation and all this reality, Jesus tells this parable, and he uses three images to convey one parable. And so now we come to the third image, the prodigal son, the lost sons, the gracious father, and we come to that first perspective of the third image, if you're following along with me, and that is the perspective of the father. And it is extremely important that we not miss this. The character of God is so vital. Why? Because who you are and the way that you live reflects who you think God is. And it reflects what kind of character you believe that He has. Isn't that the case? This is where what we believe really influences how we live. The person who thinks of God as a sugar daddy or a Santa Claus will live their life accordingly. The, the person who thinks that God is waiting for you to mess up so he can punish will live their actions out accordingly. I read this quote the other day. I found it fitting. The greatest cause of atheism is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So, so we're asking, what would something like that, a reality like that, what does that reveal? What does that say about those people and what they actually believe? The person who has no faith in God will live as someone who has no faith in God. But the person who says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior, will demonstrate how he or she lives by the way that she lives, he or she lives. What the they're demonstrating what that actually means to them, how they interpret that, how they view that, how they see God, how they uh, view people. What does that actually mean to them? It, again, it's not perfectionism, but it's still obvious enough. And in that sense, every breath we breathe, every day that we live, we exhibit to the world what our deepest conviction is about the God we confess. 
And Jesus is teaching us so marvelously in this amazing story. How wonderful is the character of the God in whom we believe, the heavenly Father in whom we trust. And so we ask ourselves, do we look like people who believe in this type of God? Well, what kind of God is He? Our first point this morning is, in the first place, God is a God who provides generously. Even when the younger son comes and says, give me my share of the inheritance that belongs to me, which was essentially to say, you are dead to me, give me the money that I deserve out of, based on inheritance rights, it is evident that the father has provided generously for his son's present and for his future. And in a way that it's underlined by uh, when the older brother comes along and he complains that he has never had a party. And the father says, my son, all that is mine is yours. Everything that is mine is yours. It is a display of, of, of the remarkable, wonderful, overwhelming generosity of God. And you know, it's interesting, the Bible teaches us that this is the most common thing that we are likely to doubt. Consider the opening chapters of the Bible. The first two chapters of, of Genesis speaks of the generosity of, of God. He, he creates the world. And he comes to the man and the woman and he says, I give you everything that I have in this world. It's all yours to look after. But there is one thing you must never do. You must never eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by not doing that, you demonstrate that you both love me and honor me and that you trust everything that I say. And then we read in chapter 3 of the serpent who slithers in and asks some questions. Did God put you in this marvelous, magnificent world and surround you with all of these trees? And here's the question from Genesis chapter 3. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see what's happening there? It's not just that God's word is being denied. It's that God's character, his, his fatherly generosity is being demeaned and distorted. And eventually, in their minds, destroyed so that they become incapable of believing in the magnitude of the generosity of the Heavenly Father towards His children. And from that point on, they become weak in spirit. They become lame in spirit. They become able to look at God only with a distorted sense of who He is. And so when they look in the mirror that the, that the serpent has held up in front of them, they see a father who despises them and a, and a father who plays with them and a, and a father who is ungenerous with them. The fact is that that lie of the serpent is, is localized in the human heart of our sins. Who of us have not questioned the generosity of our God when we have chosen the opposite of what He has told us is right and good? 
When we have chased after what we actually think generosity should look like to us. When we have decided that we know what is right and we know what is best. And we struggle to believe in the generosity of the Heavenly Father, even or especially Christian believers. Anytime something bad happens, that that deep instinct in us, it, it, it lunges forward and it says, he doesn't really love me. If this parable tells us anything, it tells us of the generous provision and love of the Heavenly Father. And the sad reality is that so many of our our Christian lives are lived as though we are believing the lie of the serpent rather than rejoicing in the abundance, in the abundant blessing, rather than basking in the the gracious provision that, that the Heavenly Father has given. Well, the Father generously provides second The parable shows us the remarkable grace of the Father, the remarkable grace of the Father. And this is especially seen when the the poor boy returns from his pig pen to the Father. And you can see this uh, younger son has, has taken the time to memorize his speech. He's so desperate to get his words right because he's made such a mess of things and so he, he's feeling so overwhelmed with guilt. I wonder if you've ever had to rehearse a speech in your head. I remember one time a, a roommate of mine was upset with me, and he had called out um, some selfish uh, aspects of, of something I had done. And I spent the next several days really thinking and, and praying and considering everything. And all the while, I'm, I'm rehearsing what I'm going to say in my head. I'm, I'm going over how I'm going to respond. I wanted to make sure I, I said everything that I needed to say. At first, it was very much like, how dare you? I am not selfish. <laughs> but as the time went on and I spent time thinking and praying, and my speech changed, and it was very much, you know what, you're right. You've actually put your finger on something that I, I was not seeing. And I still, I memorized how I was going to formulate what I was going to say because it was so impactful. So here's this younger son, and he's carrying this burden, and and he's rehearsing his speech to himself. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, we'll look at this again when we come to the prodigal son. But what does the father do? Even as his son is is putting his sentences together and and trying to memorize this speech, and he's getting closer and closer to the house, he, he doesn't notice that his father has pulled up the skirt of his robes and is taken out running after his son. Running, this would have been an absolutely humiliating act on the part of the father. To look out at the son who had essentially told him he was as good as dead to him. And then still love and pursue him. And to run as an older man would have been a totally humiliating act. 
totally humiliating. And yet nothing could stop him from running to his son and, and embracing him. And the boy begins his speech that he's spent all this time rehearsing. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. He doesn't even let him finish this speech that he spent all this time rehearsing. And he, he starts shouting over his sh- shoulder, you know, hey, send for the, the best robe and, and bring out the family ring and bring some shoes and kill the fattened calf. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, what does this say to us? It says that the Heavenly Father is quick to bless those who return to Him. You think about your earthly father. The thing that you feared when you returned was your earthly father. I'll never forget my mother always saying, well, just wait till your father comes home. I should be careful what I say, realizing my position, but this is when I was a child. This still doesn't happen today. (laughs) But there was a terror, right? I wasn't thinking, oh, my dad's going to love me and embrace me and wrap me up in his arms. I was like, he is going to belt me, and it is going to hurt. I always loved talking with... um, friends who have immigrant fathers, and we would always agree that they were always the toughest and the hardest. And we had an aboriginal friend in Australia, and he would say, oh, man, my dad, he really gave it to me. And we'd look at our Anglo friends, and they weren't getting beat very hard. And I said, right there with you. But you see, that's the picture that we end up putting in our own minds is, is how our Father will treat us, our earthly Father. And you and I, by our nature, have exactly that same disposition towards the heavenly Father. What punishment will He give me when I return with my lacking words of apology and faith and regret and tell Him that I have sinned against heaven in His presence and, and, and tell him that I am not worthy to be called his son? Well, this father, he runs and embraces. You know, for some people, and, e- and even for Christians, meeting God is the most feared thing that they can comprehend. But when you do meet the Heavenly Father, in, in, in repentance and in faith, it is the most glorious experience to, to feel that embrace, to, to feel that love, to feel that, that welcoming and that outpouring of grace that is undeserved. His generous provision, His amazing grace, and finally His profound joy. And that one is picked up in each of the images of the, of the overall parable that we've, we've been looking at over the last several weeks. What does the shepherd do when he finds his lost sheep? Well, what would you do? The dark side of you might kick that sheep all the way back home. But what does this shepherd do? He picks the sheep up, and he puts the sheep on his own shoulders, and he carries the sheep home, and he says, I've found the lost sheep. Let's celebrate. And the woman, when she finds her coin more valuable than the sheep, 
She says, let's have a party and celebrate, for I have found my precious coin. What does the father do when the prodigal son returns? He throws a party, dancing and music and joy. Beloved, if there is joy in heaven before the angels when one sinner is converted, do you think that the one who stands at the center of the angels is joyless? Our God is not only an awesome God, He is an awesomely joyful God. At the end of the book of Zephaniah, a book I'm sure you all read in your daily devotions, But at the end of the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah writes about how God sings over his children with joy. And Jesus says at the end of his ministry, everything I have said to you, I have said that my joy might be in you. Now hear this. If you are a joyless believer, it is because you believe in a joyless God. I have talked with people who do not know God and they are totally joyless, but I can expect that they have very little in life to rejoice over. What is shocking is when you come across a joyless believer, it feels like an oxymoron. Now, please hear me. I'm not talking about when you're going through a season of, of, uh, of weeping or, or you've gone through a great trial or distress. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your trajectory of life just has this joyless uh, cloud over it. Because the problem is that deep down, you believe in a joyless God. You can see how we express what we believe about Him. Can you see it? And yet here is Christ speaking of the Heavenly Father's profound joy. His generous provision, His amazing grace, His profound joy, profound joy. One last thing, and it's so evident in this parable, although it's never really quite spelled out, that all of this is the fruit of His deep pain, isn't it? Now, we've experienced deep pain loss here as a church family many times, but that particular loss of a child, you know, there's no word to describe a parent who has lost a child. There's no actual terminology. A child who loses a parent becomes an orphan. A spouse who loses their partner is is a widow or a widower, but a parent who loses a child, there is no term. We have just buried Eric and Carrie Leister's nephew a few weeks ago, four years old. Uh, my wife's cousin had Down syndrome. She just passed away last week, and, and I spent an hour on the phone with her mother talking through this, not to mention the, the, the Brogy family and the Maxwell family and the Anderson family or the many who have experienced this unique particular loss. And you see, all of this loss is sustained in the heart of the Father. 
That is why the joy is so great in the heart of the Father, because the loss has been felt so acutely, so keenly. So why is it significant? Why is that so significant to this story? For this reason, that in this story, there are actually three sons. There's the younger son who leaves home, There's the older son who stays home, and there is the eternal son who is telling this story. And the story of the eternal son is that at some point he will be given up to the cross. And he will cry out. One of the few times he doesn't refer to God as his father, and he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A sense that he has lost his father. And there is going to be an echoing cry in the heart of the heavenly father, surely much deeper than the, heart, uh, the cry of the heart of King David when he loses his son, uh, Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. You see, it's the story that's taking place outside of the story in Luke 15 that makes the story in Luke 15 possible and glorious. You remember what Paul said of all of this. The God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him really give us all things. Oh, what a thing it is to stand up and say, I believe in God the Father. And He is waiting. He's a waiting Father. He's watching for you to believe in Him as the generous provider, as the God of amazing grace, as the God of profound joy, who has borne the deep pain of His own Son to death to bring you home. And so I say to you, if you are far off, come home, as the song we just sang says. Come home, he's waiting for you. If you feel the incongruity between what you believe and how you live, come up and see me. Come talk to me. The whole point and the purpose of church is like we said in the video, to bring people together, to be reminded of these truths. We don't live like islands in isolation. You cannot survive like that. We have to have fellowship. We have to have community. We have to have a sense of purpose together in this. And if you feel joyless, remember the joy of the Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Father, certainly a lot of intense imagery is taking place here, and as it should be, because the reality is intense, and sometimes we just gloss over it, and we forget the intensity of loss that takes place, and we become familiar with this parable, and we just read it in a cursory fashion, quickly skim over it. Oh, but Father, if you would help us to plumb the depths, to go to the deepest understanding of what our minds can comprehend, that your Spirit would help us to understand it. And we would see that image of you and who you are and your character 
that you are a good father, that you love your children, so much so that you sent your son and that we would be identified under his righteousness, nothing of our own. And that even from that, you would send us out that we would be saved unto good works and that you would send us out to do the things that you have called us to do. Oh, what a pleasure it is to be called a son or a daughter of God, a son and a daughter of the King. And so, Father, this Mother's Day, may we remember the character of the Father. May we remember who we are and what we've been called to, that these are joyous things. These are wonderful things. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand?